prophets and the politicians. And he's addressing them. And he says this, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil? This is what the Lord says to you. Hear this, you... Now notice, I've underlined the people I'm, I want to point to. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and they say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Now look at verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple uh, hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Well, that doesn't sound very good, does it? Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word today. Lord, our nation needs prayer. We stand in the need of prayer. And Lord, we are coming to you, Lord, to see what your word has to say to us, what the Spirit is saying to the church, where our Lord, your scripture says, lies the answer. The answer is with your people. And so, Lord, we pray, speak to us, minister to us, open our ears and give us understanding. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Now, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me today and speak to all of our listeners by radio. Lord, raise up an army and raise up a standard against the wickedness that's flooded our nation. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll turn to your neighbor and tell him, you better perk up and listen. We're going to need this today. I love the Word of the Lord, and like you, I've watched uh, television as much as I could stand all week uh, long, the news and everything happening in our nation. And you know, instead of hand-wringing, I want to go to the Lord and see what the Lord has to say, because that's really all that matters. It doesn't really matter what the Democrats or the Republicans or the Libertarians have to say. Bottom line, it matters what God says. Now, let's look at what God says. The prophet Micah is addressing three groups of people in these verses we read. And here they are, corrupt politicians, compromising preachers, and complacent people. Those three groups are being aimed at by the words of the prophet. Let me say it again, corrupt politicians, compromising preachers, and complacent people. Now, because of the constraints of time, I'm going to deal mainly today with the politicians. Because all week long, we've watched politicians. And I think we tend to think, well, there is the political world and the spiritual world, and the two don't meet. But in fact, the political and the spiritual are one. Politics are intensely spiritual and need to be addressed spiritually. And that's what Micah's doing. Now, in our text, he wants the nation of Israel to know that the God they serve is not only a God of love and mercy and grace and goodness, but he's also a God who judges. Now, we don't like to hear that, but I think it's time we heard the truth. And I'm not here today to tickle your ears. 
I wasn't called to tickle ears. I was called to edify, exhort, and strengthen in the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to build your faith today. I'm going to, I'm going to focus us on God and not events. Now, he, Micah's telling the people, though he would rather bless and demonstrate love, that is God, he'd rather bless and he'd rather demonstrate love. But there's going to come a time when, because of sin and rebellion, God's patience is finally completely run out. And God kind of says with Popeye, that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. You didn't know Popeye didn't coin that, did you? God does reach that point. And when God continually tries to love and bless and show mercy, and he is rejected and his words rejected, he will give a person or he'll give a nation, and this is scary, but he will give them what they want. He will give them what they demand. So the subject of Micah chapter 3 is judgment. He's talking about judgment. And you know, the Bible says there's not anything that happens that's new under the sun. If it's happening now, it's happened before. If it's going to happen in the future, it's already happened hence. Nothing is new under the sun. Our world is cyclical. It moves through cycles. That's the way God has set it up. And right now, in my opinion, we're looking at a nation in decline exactly as Michael was in his day. He is telling the people of Israel that because they serve a God who is holy, righteous, and just, they must remember that that holy, righteous, and just God hates sin. And church, we need to understand that sin must always be judged. There is never a sin that's not judged. And that's what happened at the cross. On the cross, God judged all sin. And Jesus took the rap. Jesus took the judgment. He took it for you and me. It said he laid on him the transgressions of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And when you come to the cross, your judgment, the, the sin in your life has already been judged and it's wiped away by the blood of the Lamb. But if you don't take your sin to the cross, if it is not covered in the blood, it will certainly one day be judged because all sin must be judged. That's the nature of our holy God. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. He's perfect. One thing is certain. Every human being inhabiting planet Earth is headed for a day of judgment and reckoning. That's in the Bible. The Bible declares it, and it's true, because all sin must be judged. Thank God if you're saved, your sin will never be judged. If you're saved, if you've been washed in the blood, your sin will never be judged. It was judged 2,000 years ago on Calvary. And the same Bible teaches that the Christian will not be judged for his or her sins, but we will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ for how we lived out our Christian life, and there will be rewards given at the judgment seat of Christ. Crowns will be divvied out. Crown of righteousness, the crown for soul winners, and so on and so forth. But sin will not be judged in the life of the Christian. But Micah's telling Israel and Judah that our God is a God who not only judges individuals, but he's going to judge and does judge nations. In the same way that all individuals will one day be judged, all nations will be judged. And God is a God who judges whole nations. 
That's why politics matter. Because politicians make laws, and those laws either honor God or dishonor God. You can read in Genesis the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah and how God judged the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for the sin that he found in them. And you can't even find the ashes of those cities in our day. Archaeologists have looked for it and can't find it. God wiped it off the face of the map. Our God did. The God we just worshipped who loves us, who shed his love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, wiped those cities out. Same God. And Israel, God's very own people, was judged as a nation. God's very own covenant people. God judged them over and over again as an entire nation. I want you to understand today, church, that you don't fool around with God. You don't take God lightly. You don't take grace for granted. You don't take mercy for granted. Our God is a God who judges. And that's a good thing. He lets us know what the parameters are. He has laid out His commandments. He has made His will clear to us. The Bible says in Psalms 9:17, the Bible says, The wicked will go down to the grave, and this is the fate of all the nations who ignore God. The Bible says in Psalm 66, verse 7, He rules forever by His power. His eyes watch the nations. God is watching Japan, watching China, watching India, watching America, watching Russia. God's eye is watching. In one fell swoop, in one glance, He sizes up the nations of the world because He's God. It is my conviction today that America is at the crossroads of a strong chastening from the hand of God. And I believe that we're already seeing it begin. A strong chastening from the hand of God. There is nothing these nations did, not Israel, not Sodom, not, not Gomorrah, that God judged them that we have not done and then some. Isn't that the truth? Come on, talk to me. Tell me, isn't that the truth? There is nothing they did that we haven't done and then some. Now, if you study history, and I love history, and I, I do study it, if you study history, you'll find that all nations that have ever existed had three things in common. And here they are. One, no matter how pure their inception, they eventually went corrupt. You can go back. You can look at the Egyptian civilization, the Babylonian the Chaldean. You can go back to Greece. You can go back to Rome. You can go back to any of the major civilizations that have come and gone in history, and they all started out right. They started out relatively okay, but they eventually went corrupt. There was prosperity for a season, but things eventually got worse and not better. The second thing you'll see about every civilization is this. The vast majority of the members of those civilizations were either ignorant or indifferent to that corruption. They were either ignorant of it or indifferent to it. The third thing you see is the cause of corruption in any of these nations was always the same thing. It was sin. It was S-I-N. Sin. That brought down every single nation that has dotted the landscape of history. They eventually went corrupt and sin was at the core. Sin took them down. No nation was as pure in its inception as the nation of Israel. Started by God himself in Genesis 12 when he called Abraham. God birthed Israel with Abraham. 
And yet even Israel, God's people, covenant people, to whom he made the promises, even Israel went corrupt over and over and over again. And the vast majority of the people within Israel were either ignorant or indifferent to the corruption taking place around them. And this is why God had to raise up prophets and preachers to address the sin. For this reason, God raised up the prophets. Micah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they were raised up to preach and prophesy to a nation, to warn it so that it would turn in hopes that it would turn before it was too late. You can read Jeremiah prophesied about 40 years, 40 years that Israel would turn and yet they threw him into a pit. They mocked him, ridiculed him, ostracized him, made fun of him, rejected him, spurned him. And yet Jeremiah was standing at his doorway 40 years later, watching the people carried away in shackles to a foreign nation. The Babylonians saw them going to captivity for 70 long years, saw Jerusalem leveled, saw the temple leveled, saw the whole civilization and chosen people of God, Israel, brought down by sin. Now, as already stated, the prophet points to three groups of people saying, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. Corrupt politicians, compromising preachers, and complacent people. Those are the three. But let me look at politicians for a minute. Now, I want you to notice that God sees politicians. Isn't that good news? Can you say with me, God sees those rascals? I'm sorry. I don't know if you got mad this week. I got mad this week. I'm so tired of the blame game and pointing fingers at everybody. Every one of those politicians pointing a finger at somebody else could just easy, as easily turn around and point it right at themselves. All of them. But anyway, Micah opens up chapter 3 addressing the politicians before he addresses the preachers or the people. And he says in verse 1, he, he, he identifies two groups, the heads of Jacob. Now, the heads of Jacob were Israel's equivalent of their senators and representatives, the heads of Jacob. Their senators and representatives. And the princes of the house of Israel were the equivalent of their president and cabinet. So he's addressing the hierarchy, the political hierarchy of his day. And I want you to notice what he accuses them of doing. Micah accuses them of plucking off the skin of the people. But it gets worse. He says that they, quote, eat the flesh of the people, break their bones, and chop them in pieces as if preparing them to be a meal. Now here's the president, his cabinet, all the politicians sitting there ruling over the people. And now the prophet of God stands up and points his prophetic finger at them and says, this is what you're doing to the people. And this is one of the reasons judgment's coming on the land. Now, let me put this in layman's terms for you. Micah is saying to the politicians, see if this sounds familiar. You are fleecing, flaying, skinning, cutting to pieces, feeding off of, milking, manipulating, and using my people for your own selfish purposes. Yeah. 
Now, I want you to keep in mind that the prophet is telling us this is one of the reasons that God was judging Israel. This is one of the reasons right here. One commentator, one commentator surmised that if Micah were speaking to Washington today, he would say something like this. You accept cruises, vacations, payoffs from lobbyists in order to support legislative bills which do not benefit your constituency. You write hot checks from your own private banks and then expect tax dollars to bail you out. You care more about the spotted owl than the unborn baby. You care more about the vanishing rainforest than our own retirement. You punish people who work hard by taxing them more. And you reward people who won't work by giving them more handouts. You support legislation expelling God from school while requiring taxpayer subsidies to promote homosexual programs in the schools which most of your constituency back home don't agree with. I came to preach today. I hope you came to listen. I'm going to tell you what the Word says. Isn't it time somebody told the truth? All right. This behavior, says Micah, is wrong. And God will ultimately judge it. And it's trickle down. When the leadership sins like this, it trickles down into the nation. And it puts the nation in jeopardy. Did you know the Bible is very clear on what God expects of politicians? Does that surprise you? The Bible is very clear on what God expects. I believe that failure over what I'm about to share with you is one of the reasons why America is at the crossroads of judgment. Let's look at three requ requirements from Proverbs. All of this I'm culling from Proverbs that God gives for government leaders from the president all the way down to the city council. Here's what the book of Proverbs says God expects, and when these things are not met, it puts the nation in jeopardy. First one, righteousness. Proverbs 29, verse 2, when the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, the people groan. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had some groaning this week. If, if, if the righteous were in authority, I'd be rejoicing, not groaning. Proverbs 16, 12 says, it's an abomination to God and to men for kings, for rulers, for politicians, leaders to commit wickedness. For a throne is established and made secure by righteousness, moral and spiritual rectitude in every area and relation in life. Why is it today that we look for charisma, intelligent qualities, and not morality? What has happened to us? I can almost say with Paul in Galatians, who has bewitched us? God does not put a premium on charisma, nor telegenic qualities, nor Washington savvy. God puts his premium and his blessing on righteousness. Can everybody say the word with me? Righteousness. Now, now let me just pull one little thing, one little characteristic out of righteousness that matters a whole lot, and that is the word honesty. God blesses honesty. Now, I don't know about you, 
But for me, when I am confronted with honesty, it is like somebody just gave me oxygen. We need honesty today. Proverbs 17, 7 says, We don't expect eloquence from fools, nor do we expect lies from our leaders. Proverbs 17, 7. We don't expect lies from our leaders, but unfortunately today we do. Leaders and liars are not the same thing. Leaders and liars are not the same thing. Somebody wisely pointed out that a man isn't a liar because he tells lies. He tells lies because he's a liar. Now, I need to read that again because some of you are saying, I need the interpretation. Let me say that again. A man isn't a liar because he tells lies. He tells lies because he's a liar. Liars are as liars do. Liars lie because liars are liars. And what liars do is lie. It's a character quality. It's a character quality. It's a character flaw that goes all the way to the core of that person. Liars lie because that's what liars do. Honest people tell the truth because that's what honest people do. What a lot of our leaders don't understand is we want honesty. We don't want somebody looking in the lens of the camera, looking us in the eye, and assuming that we don't have IQs that rise above double digits and lie to us. Tell us the truth, and we will handle it. Amen? What we can't handle is knowing that you're looking right at us and not being completely forthright with us. I'm telling you, it's time we had honest leadership. Not somebody politicking, not somebody trying to get elected, but honesty, because if I hear honesty, I'm voting for that. Everybody say with me, tell us the truth. Isn't that what you've wanted to say all week long? Let's just get it out of our system. One, two, three. Tell us the truth. So the first quality God looks for in a leader is righteousness. And that's politicians. Second thing God looks for is wisdom. The book of Proverbs turns wisdom into a woman and gives her a voice. And I want you to listen how this woman called wisdom speaks. Quote, I am Lady Wisdom, and I live next to sanity. <laughs> I live next to sanity. You don't feel like the inmates are running the asylum when somebody walking in wisdom is in leadership. Now, you're going to have to let me vent a little bit up here today. I'm going to vent a little bit. This, this builds up in me all week long. I'm going to vent a little bit. But I'm going to vent through the Word of God. I'm Lady Wisdom, and I live next to sanity. Knowledge and discretion live just down the street. Good counsel and common sense are my characteristics. I am both insight and the virtue to live it out. With my help, listen, with my help, leaders rule and lawmakers legislate fairly. With my help, governors govern along with all illegitimate authority. The returns on me exceed any imaginable bonus. By wisdom, leaders rule, lawmakers legislate, and governors govern. And I'm not talking about political correct wisdom because that's insanity. I'm talking about the wisdom that is in this book. 
I'm looking for somebody. I'm looking for somebody up there in Washington who in the middle of this 911, this financial nightmare, can stand up and say, can we not go to God in prayer? Can we pray? We prayed outside. We prayed outside the White House after 911 when we had been attacked physically and the trade towers came crashing down and the Pentagon was struck. We prayed then. Why can't somebody stand up and say, we need help. This is bigger than we are. We need God. I need God. According to God's word, a leader needs wisdom more than charisma, wisdom more than Washington savvy. God places a much higher premium on wisdom than any single thing in a leader. Wisdom is better than a strong economy. Wisdom will lead you into a strong economy. I'm going to say that again. Wisdom will give you a strong economy. So when I look at what's happening to our economy, I know somebody hadn't had wisdom. For wisdom, the Bible says, is far more valuable than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with it. Wealth and glory accompany wisdom. Also, substantial honor and a good name. Wisdom's benefits are more than a big salary, even a very big salary. The returns on wisdom exceed any imaginable bonus. We need wisdom in Washington. We need wisdom in our leaderships. Not just any wisdom, but godly wisdom. Wisdom that comes from the book of wisdom. Wisdom that comes from the scriptures that do not change. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord will never pass away. The wisdom in this book transcends cultures and transcends societies and transcends fads and trends. It transcends whole civilizations. It's good for America. It's good for China. It's good for India. It's good for Russia. This book is for people everywhere, and it gives wisdom. An effective leader doesn't take polls if he's walking in wisdom. He doesn't wet his finger and lift it to the political wind. Catering to the squeakiest wheel, no matter if that squeaky wheel is wrong or not, that is not a leader. That's a politician. President Harry Truman wrote these words. I wonder how far Moses would have gone if he'd taken a poll in Egypt. Harry Truman said this, by the way. I'm going to say that again. One of our presidents actually said this. What would Jesus Christ have preached if he'd taken a poll in Israel? Where would the Reformation have gone if Martin Luther had taken a poll? It isn't a poll or the public opinion of the moment that counts. It's right or wrong leadership. It's men with fortitude, honesty, and belief in the right that makes epics in the history of the world. Everybody say with me, wisdom. Righteousness, wisdom in our leaders. And then I want to bring out the last one. A leader, a godly leader, will protect the weak and the defenseless. Proverbs 31, 8 to 9 says, speak up for the people who have no voice. He's talking to a political leader in this chapter. Speak up for the people who have no voice. For the right of all the down and outers. Anybody in here ever been down and out and needed somebody to speak up for you? Speak out for justice. Stand up for the poor and the destitute. 
A leader is to speak out for those who cannot speak for themselves and defend those who cannot defend themselves. And there is none more helpless and none more innocent than the unborn. Now I'm going to go where angels fear to tread. Who would have ever guessed that the womb of a woman would become a more dangerous place than fighting in the streets of Iraq? Who would have ever guessed it? Now, I want to say, first of all, let me preface before I dive in here, that if you in here today have had an abortion, you know what? God forgives, and God gives a brand new life. He washes it away like anything else. So I don't want you to feel condemned, but I've got to address this. Since I began preaching at 18 years of age, which was some time ago, 37 years ago, I've spoken out on behalf of the unborn. I, my convic the convictions I've got today have not changed in 37 years. So this isn't anything new for me. This is not, speaking on this is not my first rodeo. I've spoken on this many times. And I'm going to share with you why I take this stand. And I'm going to let the Bible speak for me. First of all, the Bible teaches that life begins at conception. Now, I'm going to assume that this is our ultimate authority. This being our ultimate authority, this is not a matter of opinion, but this is a matter of what you arrive at by study of the Word of God. So the Bible teaches that life begins at conception. I want you to listen to what God said to the prophet Jeremiah. It is so powerful, it blows my mind. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Well, that's just loaded. That is loaded with spiritual dynamite. Jeremiah knew that God had been intimately involved during the entire gestation time he had within the womb of his mother. Jeremiah knew that God was involved at the very moment he was conceived because he says, I was formed. And that's a key word. The Bible teaches that each person is made in the womb. Not randomly grown, but formed with a purpose in mind. And that God is the former. The word form comes from a Hebrew word meaning to mold into a form like a potter shapes a jar of clay. So God, the moment conception takes place and the male sperm merges with the female egg, at that moment, God becomes involved in the formation of that baby according to the word of God. So Scripture says that God certainly treats as a life that which is conceived. He doesn't treat it as a thing. He doesn't treat it as a substance. He doesn't treat it as anything but a life. And a life that has a purpose before it's even conceived. He treats as a life that which is conceived. He doesn't wait three months. He doesn't wait six months. He doesn't wait nine months down the road. He immediately undertakes involvement in the formation of that new life. And he said to Jeremiah, before your daddy was a sparkle in your mama's eyes, 
I saw you and I had a purpose for you and I called you. Now follow me so that when a child is short-circuited into eternity, you can almost hear God saying, wait a minute, I had a plan. I had a destiny. Hang on, hang on, I was forming. Job said, did not he who made me in the womb make everyone else? He said, did not the same God form us all within our mothers? Job 31, verses 13 and 15. God told Jeremiah, I formed you. And God's knowledge of each person, what they will be, what they will do, what their destiny holds, begins before conception. That's why I tell you all the time, God never says, well, I'll be green eyes, brown hair. I didn't know. Shazam. God never says, Shazam. No, God was involved in the forming process. And we've got to get a hold of this. When all else fails, follow directions. When there's a controversy, what says the word? God told Jeremiah, before your conception, Jeremiah, I knew you. I knew you. I knew what your voice was going to sound like, what you were going to look like, what you were going to face, what was going to come against you, what your failures and successes were going to be. I had it all pegged down. And David confirms this. He says, you formed my inmost being. You knit me in my mother's womb. I praise you. So wonderfully, you made me. You made me on purpose. Wonderful are your works. My very self, you knew. My bones were not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, fashioned as in the depths of the earth. Your eyes foresaw my actions. In your book, all are written down. My days were shaped before any of them were lived out. Today's a surprise to you, but God's already seen your day. When you walk across that stage and you graduate, you say, wow, would you look at this? But God already saw that. See, God knew you before you were conceived and hatched a plan over your life. David said he was fearfully and wonderfully made, not fearfully and wonderfully evolved. He said, you formed me, knitted me, made me, you knew me. Life and purpose both begin at conception and before, according to the Word of God. Now, my second reason for the pro-life position I take is this, and this is biblical. This is why I go to it. Life in the womb is revealed in Scripture and in science to be distinct from its mother's life. Now, I want you to catch this because, and and I'm condemning no woman. Trust me, y'all. This has been a gigantic deception that has been perpetrated on our culture. But I want you to hear me. We say, well, it's my body, so I can do what I want with it. But is it really? See, the Bible says there's two lives when you're pregnant. 
That baby is not just an extension of you. That baby is its own person. Life in the womb is revealed in Scripture and in science, both to be distinct from the mother's life. It's not the woman's body. It's two bodies. When Elizabeth, for instance, let me give you a biblical example where I get this. When Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, was six months pregnant, the Bible tells us she was six months pregnant. When she was six months pregnant with John, she received a visit from Jesus' mother, Mary. And you can read about this in Luke 1.44. When she heard Mary's greeting, Hello, Elizabeth. Hey! It says the Bible records, The baby in her womb, John the Baptist in her womb, leaped. And she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to notice something. Two distinctly different things happened to Elizabeth and John in her womb. John leaped with joy at the mother of his Messiah. But Elizabeth got filled with the Holy Ghost. When she heard Mary's greeting, the Bible records the, the baby leaped. Now Elizabeth later testified to Mary. Here's, here's what Elizabeth testified to Mary. She said, the moment the sound of your greeting entered my ears, the babe in my womb skipped like a lamb for sheer joy. Now catch this, everybody. Please catch this. I want you to notice a baby three months from birth praised God. This is why it is clear to me that at the moment of conception, a human life has begun. Utterly distinct from father or mother. The Bible reveals personhood begins in the womb, not after birth. I see John in there six months. <laughs> Do you get this? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's the mother of my Savior, glory. So it's a life, and it's a person, and it's distinct from its mother and father. And we'll abort them then? I got one more reason for being pro-life. We're killing off our future protection. We're killing off our future protectors. Now, I want you to listen carefully to me. For a nation to continue, it needs a total fertility rate of 2.1 children per mother, 2.1 children per mother for a nation to survive, to repopulate itself, to continue. America has approximately that level right now. But let me tell you who doesn't. Canada has one point, a 1.48 birth rate. Europe has a 1.38 rate. Japan, a 1.32 rate. And Russia, a 1.14. Now, let me tell you what that means. These countries are going to be out of business by around the year 2050. Buildings, homes, churches, with nobody to fill them. Because everybody will have died off, and they did not repopulate themselves because of abortion. Now, the scourge of abortion and population control 
is about to leave, and I want you to remember that you heard this here because you're going to see it in the news if you live a while longer. The scourge of abortion and population control is about to leave whole nations with nobody to carry them on. In America, we have aborted an entire generation who would have contributed to the economy, social security, and military defense against hostile nations, but they're not there. And one of the reasons that Social Security will go broke is because we aborted those who would have continued it. So there's a very practical side to this issue and not just spiritual. This is why from the president on down, politicians should stand tall on behalf of the unborn. Being legally right doesn't mean something is morally right. You can do something legally that you can get away with, but you know that God doesn't bless it. You know God won't bless it if you do it. You can go out, you can go home today, and you can grab a bottle of alcohol and get drunk as a skunk on a bunk, and you're not going to be arrested for it, but you know that it's wrong in the eyes of God. You know that it is. When Micah warns the people that God's about to judge, he points first to the corrupt politicians and he says, it's your fault. And he goes from there to the false prophets and to the complacent people who were doing nothing about it. And he says, it's your fault. You ought to be calling them on it. You ought to be making them, you ought to be calling them on the way they're leading. Now, where does that leave all of us today? I want to put a verse up. And I want us to stand together and we're going to read this verse together. Now, I read this last night when I was going through Jeremiah. And I would really encourage you to read through the book of Jeremiah because it's a real parallel. Now, I know this is a sobering word. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. You're going to hear things a whole lot more sobering than this. I'm giving you a solution. And here's the solution. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and say it with me, heal their land. I'm going to tell you something now in closing. There's not a soul in Washington that has a clue what's really happening because it is spiritual. And there is only a spiritual fix for it. The $700 billion bailout isn't going to do it. I saw this morning on the television, already another state, not California, another one is asking for billions in bailout. How can you loan what you have borrowed? I'm not an economist, but I'm not stupid either. How can I loan what I have? Let me go get a $1,000 loan, and then I'll loan you 900 that's insane. The inmates are running the asylum, not people with wisdom. It's going to take the church praying, crying out. Here's what I saw in Jeremiah. I want you to read it with me. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly and truly execute justice between every man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the transient and the alien, the fatherless and the widow, or shed innocent blood, 
by oppression and by judicial murders, judicial, legal murders, in Jerusalem, or go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers, to dwell in forever. I told you who gave us this land. The writers of the Constitution gave it to God. And they are our fathers in that respect. He says, I'll let you stay in your land if you will amend your ways. And it begins at the church. Judgment begins at the house of God, and then it moves on out. And so how many of you are willing? And I'm going you know, I'm I'm to ask you to do what Charles Stanley last night. I just happened to grab Charles Stanley at the end of his broadcast. Charles Stanley got down on his knees in front of his whole church and the whole television audience. And he had talked about God judging America. He got on his knees and he asked his church to pray for three minutes. And he said, would you pray every day when you go to bed at night that God will have mercy, real mercy, that he will save this land. And then he said, or we are going to have desperate times like we have never seen before in this country. And I believe that's true. But I believe God can turn it. I believe it's not too late. It almost is, but it's not too late. So will you pray? Will you ask God? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow suit with a man who teaches the Word of God, Charles Stanley. And I'm going to get on my knees. And I'm going to ask you to pray. And we're going to take three minutes. And we're going to ask God to save this country. You can pray any way you want to, but we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to forgive us our sin and to wash us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Forgive us for going our own way. Forgive us, Lord, for flaunting our sin in your face. Forgive us for not crying out when we could have and should have. Lord, forgive America for the pornography, the murder, the drugs, the apostasy away from your word and away from the blood of Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for calling good evil and evil good. Forgive us, Lord, for grieving your spirit over and over again and plogging our ears to the call of God. Forgive us, Lord, for our constant fighting and hatred and division in Washington. That not even a law, not even anything can be passed. We're so at each other's throats with vitriolic hatred. Lord, forgive us for the divisiveness that has blocked the people actually being helped. Forgive us, Lord, for runaway spending for stupidly handling, not handling our money, for foolish spending, for foolish presumption that the money would always be there. Forgive us, Lord. We ask you to wash and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We come to you as a church and ask you whatever we can do, Lord, as a church to make a difference, we will do. Forgive us, Lord for the shedding of innocent blood, for short-circuiting millions into eternity. Forgive us, Lord, for our pride and our arrogance. 
and going our own way. We ask you, Lord, to send an awakening to this nation. Send an awakening to America. Send another great awakening from coast to coast, shore to shore, in every city, every state, every town, that the Spirit of God would raise up a standard against the flood of wickedness that has moved through our land. We thank you for your help, Lord. Now you take a minute and you pray to the Lord and we'll stand and close.